Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Welcome to a brand new edition of Freedom Books, Flowers in the Moon, the podcast brought to you each week by the Times Literary Supplement. My name is Stig Abel and I'm the editor of the TLS. We're all still in isolation. I'm wearing old, ill-fitting clothes and have a scratchy, non-becoming beard. So no difference there. Thea is with me via the wonders of technology. Thea, how are you? Uh, I'm all right. Same, bar the beard. Bar the beard. Good to hear that. How's your foot? <laughs> uh, it's improving, actually. Uh, in the past few days, I have been much more mobile. Not that I have anywhere to go. <laughs> you're not allowed for your, your one-half-hour sanctioned walk? Or, or I have been to the field been at that? the end of the road, yeah, to take the dog. Oh, that's nice. Um, which was, I felt very emotional. <laughs> did you? Did you? Was it yeah. one of those things where... You, well, it was yeah, the first you, time I'd left the house in, in a month, so... Or more, in fact, almost five weeks. So, yeah, I do par- it was, I, it's amazing. I do partly feel that I'm, I've evolved into something that can handle this. So I was saying to my wife that apart from not going to work, my life hasn't changed that much. Because I'm basically, I'm either working or looking after my children and then I stay in at night anyway. It's not like I've, you know, my vast social life has not been reduced a tremendous amount by this. Well, and we'll see in um, Symposium that we come to talk uh, talk about in a bit, a lot of people say that their lives haven't changed all that much. I think it's Gabriel Giuseppevici says that writers are by their very nature self-isolators. So it feels much the same to him. Although I think Sarah Moss in her contribution disproves the the kind of the universal theory of that uh, right, we'll because she does we'll... pine for people yeah i don't pine for people at all now before we uh, move on uh that's true uh, i want to do food thing because i think I, i've been asking a lot of unhealthy questions each week i want to have a healthy question for you Thea. you can only take one vegetable into quarantine what will it be well um we sort right. of alluded to this in previous episodes, and I know you're about to tell me it's a fruit, but the tomato, yeah. I consume a... a oh, for, yeah, so, you're so Italian, aren't you? But also, I mean, because that is technically a fruit. Um, mm, I don't know. Am I allowed sweet? I, am I, allowed I, sweet I really corn? like a long stem broccoli. Just the one. Do you? <laughs> yeah, you've got to space it out. Am I allowed sweet corn? <laughs> yeah, I don't see why yeah. not. So I, yeah, I think how, do you, corn, how do you have it? I have it in tins, obviously, Thea, but I mean, I, I quite like it roasted. <laughs> I think sweet corn is... is I love it, it on the I cob. Was, yeah, I like it on the cob. Do you, know, my, do you know my other theory about vegetables? Anything with red peppers in is kind of inherently you, childish. 
Nothing Do you think like, say your ve- other great theory about vegetables yeah, is though? Yes, many. I can't even think what the first theory is actually. Um, no, anything with red peppers in is childish. Like, who who eats red peppers apart from raw in salad? No one. Well, well, well what about in gazpacho, which quite oh. often has red pepper in it? Yeah, all right. That's all a right. very adult dish. Yeah, I don't like it. Do you like it? <laughs> I do. Yeah, you're so sophi- Yeah, okay. We've established you're sophisticated, and I'm a provincial pro. But anyway, we've got a couple of things I want to get to. Um, People have been set, uh, tweeting where they're from. Christopher Patton in Jakarta and Catherine Sharp, who comes from the UK and is now in Quebec, Canada. So um, I, I do like the thought of people listening to us all over the world. Do tweet us your location at FBFM underscore podcast or at Stig Abel or at Thea underscore Leonard Dootsie or at the TLS or anywhere you like. And someone's emailed us, Thea. I mentioned, I think it was probably with Lucia, a thing I did with my family where all, we all pick a painting out of a thousand and one paintings to see before you die and we all redraw it. And uh, we've been doing that this week, actually. Anyway, Heather and Jordan from Yorkshire gave it a go and sent us a picture and they did Caravaggio. And it was really good, wasn't it? Yeah, it was. It was very impressive. And it also had two beers in it, the photo. Did you see that? I thought that was... It did. Uh, well, apparently, was... yes, and they were... Um... They, are we allowed to give a brand name? Yeah, yeah, I think so. <laughs> they, were, they were Corona beer, which is apparently incredibly <laughs> cheap at the moment, which is funny and just absurd. <laughs> yeah, so drink a Corona beer. But should should, to... I reckon you should do it because you can draw, can't you? Uh, I can draw certain things. I'm, I can draw animals. I'm not so good at humans. I mean, okay, well, have animals. a have a go. It's really good fun. Get a picture, a famous painting, and redraw it. Okay. Um, I, I've done it various times. I mean, mine looks just like someone's had a stroke. While I haven't seen any of yours. I'll have to, I'll have to look them up. Are they all on Twitter? No, 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 a private, private thing. You but people can make yourself. them public. Yeah, exactly. But anyway, if people send it to us. Uh, here's my email just if you want to send you uh, a redrawing of a famous picture, stig.able at the-tls.co.uk. They're all very cheering. Right, uh, a couple of other things. You should be subscribing to the TLS if you listen to this podcast. If you're not, use this code, ver-tls.co.uk forward slash podcast offer. Uh, Thea coughing suspiciously there. If you notice any time anyone coughs, everyone goes, oh, God. Do you do, do that? If, if, if your fellow coughs, you go, oh, you're okay. The nervous look. Okay, that was just a, just a throat clear, was it? That was just, that was. I, I, I didn't know how to get away from the microphone because it's sort no, of taped can't. to me. Yeah. <laughs> Wrapped up in wires. <laughs> Oh, my God. Anyway, concentrate. Podcast offer, the-tls.co.uk forward slash podcast offer. Best price anywhere on the internet. Please do subscribe. This week, we've asked a friend of this podcast, Dr. Zan Van Tulliken, to write about his take on coronavirus and the medical political response to it. He'll be on hand to tell us what to think. And we did a little bit of this last week, but we've got several TLS contributors to share their secrets of self-isolation, what they're reading and watching and listening to. Lucy Dallas will be here to go through them all. So it's extraordinary when you think of it how quickly we've adjusted to the new normal. A couple of months ago, we'd grouse at the weather if it kept us inside, longing for spring and freedom. Well, that spring will now never come. Instead, we have to contemplate a world of lockdown and economic shutdown as countries around the world struggle to deal with the coronavirus pandemic. And in this, we are all observers and agents, and we've had to become amateur epidemiologists. Have to become amateur. Come on, epi- Stig. Epidemiologists. <laughs> 
<laughs> I was ready to help. Yeah, thank you. Well, that's Zan Tullican not helping there, and he's not an epidemiologist, epidemiologist, but he is a doctor with a specialty in public health and a long-standing reader and contributor to the TLS. And in the last couple of weeks, his expertise has grown. He made a documentary about the coronavirus and then, going beyond the call of duty, actually caught it himself. He's also, along with supermarket workers, the only one who seems to be professionally enhanced by the coronavirus because uh, uh, he's on the telly all the time uh, talking about it. But he is on the podcast as well with us now. Zand, hello. It's lovely to be here. In fact, I'm, I'm meant to be on the telly all the time and I've been um, so poorly that I haven't been able to. But I was fibbing to my mother about being well and my twin brother, who I had sent to do the telly programme for me, um, which is live on, on BBC One every morning, um, had mentioned that I was very unwell and had to get to hospital. And my mother then saw this and was absolutely livid. So having a twin brother isn't always an advantage. But I am on the mend um, now, which is very good. And, um, did and you, how so, did you feel? To, did you have it? Yeah. So, well, well I, I sort of had two, two problems, really. One was I had the reason that I think I had the coronavirus. I've not had a positive test. Um, but the reason I think I had it is is partly because I had a, a, a high temperature, really felt dreadful and had a hacking cough. Um, but I also completely lost my sense of taste and smell without having nasal congestion. And so, um, and that seems to be, depending on what you read, about 30% of cases. And it's a very, very, very peculiar symptom because, um, I mean, we know it does happen with some other viruses, but it's unusual. And um, I mean, I could eat a spoonful of Coleman's mustard and feel, I mean, I could be eating wallpaper paste. You feel nothing. Very odd. And is that still there? Even after you've recovered gradually, It's gradually returning, but food was very peculiarly joyless. And, and the other thing, um, my, my twin brother is an infectious disease doctor um, and is on the coronavirus wards at the moment um, in London. And um, I was phoning him in tears repeatedly. And I wasn't, you know, I felt very ill, but I mean, I had a very mild case compared to many people. And he said, you know, I think there is some central... Um, uh, some central effect by which I mean your 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 brain your your mood is also affected by the virus um, because I wasn't feeling exactly I didn't have anything specifically to be tearful about but we phone him in floods of tears quite regularly and our, our poor mum has had the same problem so um, yeah I don't I don't know uh, you know but but we're still it's very strange it's a new a new illness so we're still trying to figure out how to how to describe it and what it what it means to everybody. And then you went to hospital yesterday uh, with something else. Well, there do also seem to be some cardiac effects. And I had a thing called atrial fibrillation. And I woke up in the morning and, th- and thought, you know, I haven't practiced as a doctor for a few years now. But um, when you learn to take pulses, you learn to look for them being regular. And in fact, you want them to be regularly regular. Um, so there are a few pulses which might go boom, boom, boom boom, 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 and they'd be um, regularly irregular. Uh, but I just had a chaos pulse, which is atrial fibrillation. So I went in and um, I have to say, I, I had a real cry at how extraordinary, um, I'm, I'm, forgive me for, for burdening your your cliche-free podcast with this, but with the NHS in, in, in the, in the, you know, in the space of maybe the sort of four or five hours that I was there, probably 20 people cared for me uh, really meaningfully and profoundly and, and made me well and did all sorts of complicated stuff and just took care of me. And I, I felt completely overwhelmed by it. It was really, um, I mean, it's obvious, right? I worked for the NHS for 10 years. I, I never spent any time on the wards crying about what a brilliant job we were all doing, but um, it does 
feel quite emotional being there at the moment. And there are some very, very poorly people coming in alongside me. And so how optimistic are you, uh, Zan? Because um, how do you feel about things? Because you've seen, you've spoken to the chief medical officer just before he got ill. He may have given it to you or you may have given it to him. Uh, you've 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 been in hospital yesterday you've seen the wards your brother works in hospital are you feeling like a lot of the noises coming out of government is that it's going to be bad but it's going to be manageable is that kind of what how you sort of read it as well my anxiety as you say so i made this documentary and so i got to interview people who would not normally necessarily pick up the phone to me um i met chris witty although we didn't interview him for the program but i did have a long chat with jenny harries who um is the deputy chief medical officer and really an extraordinary person as well and then a ton of other virologists and epidemiologists and so on all of whom are, are deeply and directly involved and my anxiety was i had begun to worry that there might be no plan and um, I think lots of people felt that as as these measures, first it was, it was no herd immunity, then it was herd immunity, then we moved away from herd immunity again, all these sorts of things. And I think the communication has maybe not been brilliant. But in fact, as soon as I set foot in the Department of Health and Social Care, you, you could immediately say, oh, no, this is clearly... We, we have some of the best people in the world working on this in the UK. They have been working on it for many years. We have had a plan. Um, it is impossibly difficult. There is no plan that could make this virus not have a terrible, terrible lasting effect on people's health and, and on the economy. Um, but I think the anxiety that maybe it's just chaos in government and they're making it up from day to day, that is not in any way the sense I have, despite the many shortcomings of the response. Part of the plan, as I understand it, is for the most vulnerable, um, the elderly and those with uh, severe underlying health conditions to stay in for 12 me- weeks. How realistic is, is that? And then how do you sort of weigh that against the, the toll on their mental health of, of staying in for that kind of amount of time? I, I think the most difficult thing about our response to this is that for everything you do to reduce someone's risk of getting coronavirus you increase their risk of something else that you you cannot win. And so my poor parents, I just delivered some groceries to them. Of course, um, you know, everything we do to keep them safe is devastating for their physical and their mental health. I mean, it's really, really dismal to be... um, older you know they're not they're not at the end of their lives but I mean my my father's over 80 my mother's in her 70s and you think well how many years have we got left and how many of them are going to have to spend locked up one of one of our remaining summers I mean I feel like I'm going to lose a whole summer out of my life and um you know hopefully I'll have a few more to go so so I think it's very very tough on people and and the other thing that's very striking is that we there are some people who are going to be much much more affected than others and for some people it's impossible to do this i mean that's the the thing in all the commentary about the selfish people going working walking on dartmoor or whatever the you know these people who haven't been taking the rules seriously um we are asking people to totally totally upend their lives and i think um for some people, that's impossible. If you live at the top of a tower block and you've got four kids who need a ton of care and you're trying to work two jobs and, you you know, there are people who just cannot do what the government is asking them to do without effects on their family that are so devastating, it, it becomes untenable. And so I think the, the other very strong sense I had talking to people in um, Department of Health and Social Care and in Public Health England is 
we all have to remember we are trying to slow the spread of a virus that we will almost all inevitably get. And so it's like we're all tied to the tracks and the best we can do is slow the train down. And slowing the train down is really important. But the sort of guilt and the fastidiousness, there's that Catholic sin of, of scrupulousness where you're sort of so obsessed with the minutiae, you forget the basics of sort of the Bible's teaching, you know, be nice to poor people and you're obsessed with how many kinds of material your, your, your clothes are made out of or something. And, and I think there's a danger of that kind of thing where we're so obsessed with the two meter rule that we're forgetting a sort of maybe a, a generosity a, a general intent to slow the spread of a virus. Do you think the problem is also there's a kind of zealotry on both sides? There's a kind of, there's a certain type argument which is just lockdown and lockdown is completely safe. There are no consequences to locking down other than stopping the spread of the virus and therefore anyone who doesn't exactly embrace lockdown is a traitor. That's one extreme view. And the other view is the kind of Trumpian view is get the economy going at all costs because ultimately the economy makes everyone's lives better. But realistically, for everyone, including the government, it is trying to find a point on the spectrum between those two things that is manageable, isn't it? Because ultimately, if you destroy the economy, people will die. If you lock people up for three months, people will die. People will have uh, irredeemable breakdowns. If you don't let any, if you if you allow people to romp around the streets, people will die. And there's a there has to be a point on a spectrum we hit here, rather than there is an absolute answer either way. Uh, yeah, I think I think you're absolutely right. I I guess I the, the metaphor I used in the in the piece I wrote for you is this kind of um, I, I used to fly um, small planes at university. I was a very very bad pilot, but this this. Um, the thing that I was most frightened of, which was a mistake I managed to never make, was bouncing the landing. If you bounce a little plane, your inclination is to go, oh my God, you know, you're airborne again. You don't want to be airborne. You want to be on the runway. So you think I'm going to put the nose down and get it back. But the plane has already slowed down, is already heading towards the runway again. And you pile it into the runway and bounce even higher. You then overcorrect and eventually you drive the nose into the ground. And it's usually sort of not fatal, but but really, really embarrassing and, and terrible for the airplane. And so... Um, and, and we're trying to control an oscillating system, right? As we push down the, 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 the lockdown, we get fewer deaths from coronavirus, but we're going to create all these other disastrous consequences. But they're all further down the line. So as we compensate for one thing and we wait the sort of four to six weeks for the, for the deaths to fall, um, so the other things start to escalate. And we really don't want to be in an oscillating system. So the government as you say, is trying to thread the needle. And I think all the, you know, through Brexit, I think there was a lot of criticism of the sort of the centrists. I always feel like you, you've been a, a vocal and enthusiastic, enthusiastic centrist. But um, in fact, we are trying to find a centre ground. And, and um, I, I guess the sense I have at the moment is it's a new tool. And this first bit of the lockdown is figuring out what the cost is, and what the benefit is, and we're trying to explore how to make it work. And without getting into a big oscillation, how do we ease it up? What are the most important parts of the model? And how how well do our models work compared to the actual true life experience of it? And so I think in 12 weeks, we're going to have massive amounts more data from testing. Um, we're going to have a much clearer idea of the economic effects. And we will begin to work towards um, maybe not something as harsh as a cost per life saved, but uh, but we'll begin to get enough metrics that we can start to make 
the kind of decisions we would normally make make in healthcare about what 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 response is proportionate. Zan, you mentioned the, um, um, or we've both have sort of mentioned sort of reactions on social media. What do you think of the coverage generally in terms of media and social media of the pandemic? Have you are you gnashing your teeth at it, or do you think it's been fair? There's a few things that are sort of surprising where. Every time I see a headline seeing, saying largest ever increase, you think, but that's the nature of it, right? It's a doubling thing. Every increase will always be the largest for quite a while. That's that. It's an exponential curve. And so there are a few things where I think, come on, we can, we, there's a lovely graph I've seen online of the exponential curve of how much time people are spending looking at exponential curves. But, yeah, but I, I think it, in, in general, I mean, maybe with the exception of Peter Hitchens sort of really banging the drum and that the Telegraph sort of the, the end of freedom, that kind of stuff, where these are very reasonable public health measures that are that are being taken in a state of emergency to save lives. You know, I, I think you, you have to be a, a really real polemicist to, 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 to try and work this into a loss of freedom that, that's that's permanent. Um, basically, I, I suppose I've been quite impressed by it. I mean, if, if you think that every single person in the country is involved in a massively complex new bit of public health and the media have managed to effectively communicate the basics of that to people i think that's quite impressive do, do you know what i mean like to me i wrote a thing for the for the times generally where we all beat ourselves up the whole time but have we not kind of handled this pretty well you know no there's been no no mass violence on the streets there's been no you know, people have voluntarily accepted the complete reversal of their lives and more or less done so with good grace. That kind of, that that feels like a success to a certain extent. And I, I think the difficulty is, I mean, you know, we saw in Sierra Leone, in West Africa, during the Ebola epidemic, what happens as people start to really feel the pressure of a lockdown and we do get unrest. I mean, we're only two weeks in and while there are people who live absolutely hand-to-mouth day-to-day, a lot of people in the UK can get through two weeks, three weeks, four weeks. You know, people like me have a have a bigger cushion. But eventually everyone starts to go, is this worth it? What are we achieving? And I think there's going to be a really, really odd shift where we are going to feel the, a massive economic squeeze in many households coupled with, in the same household, um, people who are incredibly vulnerable, um, dying and potentially being refused care or at least getting suboptimal care. And I think what we're going to see start to play out on the news is, is both things rising quite simultaneously. We, the, the tsunami is not yet hit in terms of what is about to happen in our intensive care units and in our hospitals and in that, that Florence Nightingale Centre in the Excel Centre. Um, it's going to be a very big deal. And there is not one ventilator per bed in that Excel Centre by a long way. So great great to provide the care. But without without... Without staff, a bed is not that valuable. You know, most of this, most of the the care for this will happen, people looking after themselves at home. So I think I I remain cautiously optimistic. I think as long as the supermarkets are selling food and the key workers can work and some people are able to travel a bit and the police are not too draconian, I think we'll get through it. But I think we are, the next 12 weeks, I think will, will, will become very difficult for a period of time. Sorry to be gloomy. Oh, I, I, um, I've been speaking quite regularly to my, my aunt in Italy, who's a nurse and my cousin, her son, um, is also a nurse and he's working on, on one of the wards. So I, 
yeah, every time I speak to them, they just keep on saying, you know, it's it's still to come a few more weeks and, and you'll be where we are. And there is there is that sense of while trying to be optimistic and doing everything that we can, obviously, to avoid overwhelming the NHS, there does also come the point that you have to accept that the NHS will be overwhelmed. So, so you're you're kind of, it's both, both things, things at the same, at the same time. time. Yes. Um, but the NHS will be overwhelmed and a lot of people will go bankrupt um, and have massive financial problems. And I think my my sense, uh, I mean, you, uh, is the sense you're getting from Italy that what was initially a great deal of public support for the lockdown and these scenes of solidarity of people singing and things like that, that that has become um, maybe less cheerful and more of a grind as, as time has gone on? Um, that still seems to be high. I mean, pride in the in the National Health Service there is really strong. Ours is much younger than yours, uh, than the NHS, I mean. Um, but the, the pride and the good spirit, the goodwill is, is still very much there. We have, um, in, in Italy, you hang a f- uh, the, the trickle or flag out of your window if you have someone who, who's working, uh, you know, on the front line. And, and that's across the nation. Everyone's still doing that. Uh, and we're still doing all of the clap- the clappings and, and stuff like, like we're doing now in the UK as well. So th- I think the feeling is still, is, still, is still good, is still positive, and people are still doing their bit. But yeah, I absolutely agree that there's a... There's a limit to how long people can 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 do that, and there have to be some valves in the system. There has to be a bit of give just to uh, keep everyone going, I suppose. But they've also presumably there's got you know we're talking about this Zan as if nothing is going to be advanced outside of managing deaths in the course of this. But we've got to believe, have we not, or is this a kind of horrible naivety on my part that? better testing will take place so there'll be a sense of people who've had it who will be probably immune who can play a greater role in society a vaccine johnson and johnson are saying could be online by january um there'll be developments in how people are treated there'll be developments in how people are tested there must be an argument that while all this management's going on the greatest scientific industrial brains in the world will also be working at ways to ameliorate it artificially I don't. I don't really know how to manage optimism in with with sort of unknown things. I'm, I'm not sure about that. So um, I suppose the here's the danger with those things. First of all, we have been trying. The common cold is enormously expensive to the economy, and we have four circulating coronaviruses that have been going around for a long time in our in in human populations and um we have never invented a vaccine not only that but if you catch one of them you are not rendered immune even to that same one um a year later so um not all coronaviruses are the same uh, it may be that the vaccine can be developed um that will provoke a, a great greater immune response or at least one that lasts long enough to um to, to slow the spread but even so there are reasons to be pessimistic um that, that the other coronaviruses do not seem to be vaccines against themselves which is which it has proved and there are some well there are many viruses that we have been unable to create vaccines for dengue fever um hiv that they are not vaccines when the disease is not a vaccine against itself it's very hard to create a vaccine so that's one note of caution the other thing is it's very hard to do this stuff with the testing i i I, it would be very surprising if we did not get accurate 
rapid testing fairly soon. But it is very hard to exaggerate the difficulty of doing that, right? So at the moment, the test is looking for a little piece of genetic material. And um, the nice thing about genetic material is it wants to amplify itself. It wants to make copies of itself, and that's what the test relies on. So you take a tiny, tiny bit of it from a swab, and you can you can make it balloon in this uh, PCR machines, and then and then you can you can run it out in a gel and, and look for it. But um, the rapid test will be looking for antibodies um, and. Antibodies cross-react. Famously, um, uh, viruses that, that create antibodies, those antibodies can then go on and do other things in your body, and they can also look like antibodies to other illnesses. And so they can be very, very difficult to make perfect tests for those things as well. I think that the antibody test, I'd be pretty optimistic that we will have those soon. But 12 weeks for that is a very, very, very big ask. I mean, if you're think of the number of tests we need and how accurate they have to be and what it would mean to have a test that is... 90% accurate as opposed to 100% accurate, which would be much more likely um, that, that it will have a significant false positive and false negative rate. What that will mean for people's management is is very significant. So I, I would be cautious about saying the scientists are going to work this out. In general, um, public health is still, you know, hand washing, distancing, isolation of cases, um, those sorts of things are still going to play a very, very big part in the control of this go going forwards. Um, we could talk to you forever about this, uh, Zam, but we probably shouldn't do. I, I, one point I want to add before I ask you what you're reading and, and listening to. If this had happened in, say, 1905 or 1870, would there this covid outbreak and people would have less understanding there's a lot of deaths happening would it have left a mark on the historical record in the same way that the spanish flu obviously did although interestingly not really much of a mark on the literary record um which is the thing we had a letter in the paper about uh this week and nor did the black death interestingly chaucer barely mentions the black death it just became part of life and therefore he didn't write about it I'm just interested if, as a thought expert, if this had happened in another time in history, would people be writing about this coughing fit or would it just be seen as part of the, the general malaise of, of life? Well, I mean, sadly, I think we're going to get an answer to that question because there are large parts of the world that are effectively living in another time in history in terms of access to healthcare. And so um, in Africa, um, there are countries which have reported zero cases because they have zero tests. Um, in, I think it's in Ghana, I was speaking to a friend, a friend of mine who, who works on, on, on the region for the United Nations, and she said, um, I think it was Ghana has more uh, uh, members of the cabinet than it does ventilators in the entire country. Uh, I mean, it is really, really um, going to be difficult. And so the, the metaphors, I mean, I think what the way that we think about illness is, is through metaphor always, that we're never fully understanding it. And so there are diseases that if you've never heard of an illness and you get diagnosed with it, the first thing that people do is go, well, I don't know what neurofibromatosis type 2 is. What's it like? What can I compare it to? Is it like having, is this going to be like diabetes or like HIV or a thing that I've read about in the newspaper? Whereas if you get diagnosed with a, a well-known cancer like breast cancer, even though that will mean different things to different people and will, will 
have very different effects on them, we still have a general understanding of how to feel about that illness, if you know what I mean. And we don't have that at the moment. And I suspect that's what leaves its mark on the historical record is the metaphors of illness that we use. So, I mean, Susan Sontag famously wrote about HIV and its metaphors and tuberculosis and its metaphors, whether a disease is considered um, enlightening, a disease of poets, or whether it's a disease of extreme poverty or what it means in different communities. And, and we're, still, we're still working on that. And I suspect that that will determine how this is perceived. But I have a feeling that in many parts of the world, um, as we saw with the unrest in India, with the shutdown, many people will go, no, we are living so much closer to the edge and we are already affected by so many other diseases that are very, very severe that this is just one more thing and will leave a, um, it will leave a massive footprint in terms of death and, and suffering, but maybe on people's minds it will just be one more, one more problem. Well, shall we finish with... I know you've been playing with a squirrel who you've, you've trained, which which is a little bit, which is a little bit uh, counter Monte Cristo. But there you go. Um, uh, what apart from that are you doing? Because we we're, we're talking about books and and podcasts or music or films. What have you? What, what are you reading or watching or listening to, Zan, that you would share with us? I've been rereading um, Wolf Hall, and I'm now on to bring up the bodies. And I was reading the fever scene in Wolf Hall where he has um, malaria. And um, he says, he reassures them that the king comes to visit him at Austin Friars. And, but it's the most amazing description of a fever and the weird sort of waking dreams that you have and these sorts of things. So I really enjoyed that. And of course, the plague keeps carrying people off through the book. Um, yeah, and sweating so sickness. It feels, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's, it's a completely, uh, it's strange because the first time I read it, I don't remember that as being a very dominant feature of the book, but it, over and over again, it comes up. Um, so that's been some very good, I mean, those books are, are quite accessible in a way. They're, they're quite... Um, they're sort of barnstorming in a way. I mean, although they, you know, I think it's fair to call them literary fiction. Um, they're pretty enjoyable. So that's been good. Um, in terms of listening, I've, I've had a, I usually, because I live alone, I've got an audio book on. At the moment, I'm listening to The Hair with the Amber Eyes by Edmund Duell, um, which I, I, I'm quite into Japanese ceramics. And um, he, uh, and I, so I, everyone always says, you've got to read it, you've got to read it. It's one of those books that was on my shelf. And so rather than read it, I thought I'd, get it as an audio bit which i'm really enjoying uh zan thank you so much for uh for joining us uh, today you've written this lovely piece for the tls and I, I i feel we've just peppered you with medical questions and you've been very patient in answering no look thank it's, you so it's much. lovely to it's love to lovely to speak to some other humans um and particularly <laughs> you too Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. 
Only at Sleep Number stores or SleepNumber.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. If self-isolation and social distancing are to a degree synonymous with sensory deprivation, a shutting out of the world, there's also a clear element of intensification about it, being at home, all the time, where everything, your whole world, seems channelled and concentrated, for many of us, around the kitchen table, with the very idea of a work-life balance alive only in the memory, along with abundantly stocked supermarkets and two close conversations around a pub table. Our homes are now also offices, schoolrooms, playgrounds, gyms. So we at the TLS wondered, how is everyone coping, culturally speaking? We asked a selection of our contributors, and the results are surprising, reassuring, and in some cases, even inspiring. In those cases, look up your local bookshop and they're likely to be delivering. And yet, Dinah Birch points out, our new lives may be isolated, but they are not peaceful. I found that an increasing flow of emails and messages and calls leaves surprisingly little time for contemplation. For Claire Carlyle, everything changed when the schools closed and I became a full-time mother, housekeeper and governess. While some people face the opposite problem, time to myself, she says, is suddenly as scarce as pasta and hand sanitizer. Lucy Dallas joins us on the line now to help us through the results of this little symposium that we've done. Hello, Lucy. Hi. I'm wondering just briefly if you, Lucy, have, uh, like a number of our contributors, been reading Hilary Mantel's latest, The Mirror and the Light. Um, well, in fact, I have already read it. Oh, pre-isolation. Yeah, yeah, about three weeks earlier than I should have. I would have loved to have to have had it to save it up, but um, I read it because uh, I chose the extract that we put in the paper. Ah. And I think it it really is actually the perfect book to 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 have when you've got a bit of time and you want to be really immersed in another world. My mother-in-law's reading it at the minute, and. She said she found it quite hard to start start with. And I think the thing about Mantel generally is it's you have to really get into it. So I'm not sure how... I've seen quite a lot of people say on social media they're having trouble concentrating at the minute. And I think well, the idea that you can just sit quietly and read loads of books is, is, is almost a fantasy. I think people's minds are a bit too febrile sometimes for books that take a while to get into. Sarah Moss says, in fact, that she's finding it a bit too much at times. She says she's... Uh, she, as in Hilary Mantel, is, is managing the shadow of the end so brilliantly I can't quite bear it last thing at night, for example, which you can see. Yes, and I, I agree with that, Stig. I can understand that sentiment. I think if you, if you know that you love the Hilary Mantel already, let's say you've read the first two, you know the style and you know the world, um, I think that would make it much easier. But as for, you know, sort of beginning to read War and Peace or learning another language, I think that needs yeah. so much um, brain capacity and, as you say, concentration that actually, certainly for me, that's not where I'm at, sadly, at the moment. Ma Margaret Drabble, meanwhile, is, is continuing a pace with her German, her German lessons. 
again, if you were all right at it already, I would have thought a good bit of German grammar you could get really stuck into <laughs> if you have the discipline. Indeed. I think the world is divided between people with young children and people without young children in this place. Because um, I'm very struck by Emily Wilson, the way she talks about how she's watching cartoons with her, with her, her child, as well as trying to translate the Iliad. And I, I, my baby, I've got a two-year-old, she's awake from 6.30 in the morning till 8 o'clock at night with a two-hour gap in the, in the middle of the day to sleep. So I, if I'm not working... That's what my job is, looking after that baby and two other children. So I think there'll be loads of people who won't be doing anything other than childcare and trying to keep sane, let alone reading, you know, reading German or anything like that. Yes, and I think I was going to say, actually, I was going to make that point for quite a lot of the contributors in the piece. Um, you can see that there are some people who, uh, who work alone quite a lot anyway and who maybe, you know, haven't got kids in the house. And they're able to, sounds like they're able to concentrate on things and, you know, do serious work. And then the people who've got kids in the house are kind of saying, well, that's what I'm doing. <laughs> and in the few moments that I'm not doing that, you know, I've got time to think about cooking or music or something like that. Well, and I'm wondering, um, I mean, for for both sorts of people, I suppose, but especially especially those who who's... Uh, moments alone and unbothered are fewer, whether a particular form seems better suited than others. I think Dinah Birch mentions uh, that she's turning to shorter forms, songs, sonnets, short stories for, you know, those snatches of time. Yes, I think that's, again, and that's, again, very noble. I'm not reading sonnets. I tried to remember one the other day when I was, I think, showing off to my children about Shakespeare and I couldn't even remember the first line and a half. I read all of the sonnets last year for, for that book I was writing. And I was, because I'd never really read them, Shakespeare sonnets these are. And I was really struck by how whiny and creepy and stalkerish they are. And either that means Shakespeare was a kind of helpless moaning stalker, or he was creating a sort of pseudo Hamlet character that he was voicing in these sonnets. Because when you read them all in a row, they have these moments of sort of fleeting beauty, but taken as a whole, they're quite they're they're quite creepy. They're not particularly romantic. I mean, the Dark Lady sonnets aren't romantic at all, and the other ones have this sort of endless moaning quality to them. I find it really sh quite striking when I read them again. I, I wouldn't turn to them for consolation now. I don't think. I wonder also in the in the sonnets, it's more of a it's more like a singular persona, isn't it? Whereas in the plays, you have you know, the, the, all, all the people that he's voicing and bringing to life, whereas in the sonnets, it's more, it's much more, as you say, it's sort of, I mean, without being too reductive, he has sort of got a one-track mind in it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. that is very, very true. Uh, have you been listening to music? Will Eves talks a lot about music in his, uh, his sort of cultural diary. Are you listening to a lot of music? Yes, and we're all trying to listen to all sorts of um, different music, and also it's a way of not listening to the news um, and Will talks about he's been um, buying records from the uh, charity shop uh, which sounds like a, a brilliant charity shop and he's he's talking about two people um, uh, uh, David Munro who founded the early music consort of London so he's very much into really quite early music kind of 14th century 
uh, and a pianist called Paul Jacobs, who did, um, who recorded 20th century solo music, very, very difficult stuff, Messiaen, Stravinsky. Uh, and they both died quite young. Um, and Will writes uh, beautifully about how uh, how much he's found in, in both of them and how it, they, they, it sort of intersects together. Um, rather unbelievably, Will says he was not aware that Henry VIII had a collection of 25 crumb horns, apparently unplayed, or that the word itself meaning curved horn first crops up on an organ stop in Dresden in 1489, which frankly I thought everyone knew. Yeah, for God's sake, I'm... Uh, Come on, uh, the, the, <laughs> Will. Will Eves might be listening to Henry VIII's crumb horns. I've started listening to Green Day with my eight-year-old son. Oh, my uh, God. And he absolutely loves Green Day. He thinks it, it, there's swearing in it, which he likes. Um, but he, he's really getting into uh, his sort of American punk. It's uh, a good stepping got... stone record, I guess. Yeah, I mean, also the early stuff, because I, I remember growing up with Green Day, but the, the you know, American Idiot and stuff like that's almost a rock opera. Um, anyway, because we've got guitars in the house, so we might start a programme of... of me trying to teach them guitar, which could end absolutely horribly. You could imagine that. <laughs> Isn't Lee Child doing something similar? Lee Child is um, listening to um, people playing uh, Fender Stratocaster. He's listening to, I think he says Dave Gilmore and uh, who's the other guy? I think, is it Jeff Beck? He's very keen on the on a Stratocaster, so he's um, that, that's what he's listening to. But it, it sounds to me like uh, that you lot, you should start a family band. Let's come back to Larry Wolf. He's got he his contributions quite lovely. There's the music, but there's also a really lovely uh, bit on his family and and sort of the way that he's connecting with his his 90 year old father, who he obviously can't be with. Yes. Um, this, this is someone else who's kind of immersed in music. So he's written for us um, quite a bit, Larry Wolf, written lovely pieces about going to see uh, live shows at the Met, uh, in the Metropolitan Opera in New York. And uh, obviously this is now closed down. So he's um, he's been watching the nightly streamings because they're streaming performances that they've done before. And he's listening to them at the same time, I think, as his father, who he says... Uh, has been subscribing to the Met. I think that's what you what you call it for 50 years. He says. So um, his father is really missing going to the opera, but they're watching these streamings at the same time and um, comparing notes. And uh, Larry's talking about he's watching performances by Dmitry Vorosovsky, who um, who was a wonderful Russian Verdi baritone, really who died in 2017 and he 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 was dying he had brain cancer and he still performed um um after his diagnosis so he's talking about a particular um performance he gave when he was back at the met and he had got this diagnosis and he was singing with anna trebko which is a dream casting anyway really uh, in trovatore and so he's he's sort of talking he's talking to his dad about how wonderful they are and his dad saying, whoa, you should have seen Zinka Milinoff and Leonard Warren, you know, a, a long time before that. So that's a lovely way of comparing and communicating through music. Um, go on. OK, so who's, um, whose isolation would you uh, safely invade, Lucy? 
Well, um, I was going to say, yeah, how do you, do you just knock on the door? Is that the thing? Well, I, I suppose in isolation. A, a mask and gloves and all of the, if you, if you know, some kind of bubble helmet. My feeling is, my feeling is we shouldn't, in, we, I'm talking about taking over their isolation. I don't think we should share it with them. I think we oh, should so just like assume their isolation. Bump them yes. out. Yes. Yes, that's what I'm... Because if I go first, I would definitely bump off Lee Child. Of course and make you him would. Move, I'd move him back to... He can move back to some other, one of his other houses uh, because <laughs> he lives in Wyoming in the middle of nowhere... And he's got like he's looking at YouTube for uh, on guitars. He's reading for the Booker Prize, so he's reading loads of novels. Uh, he's watching a bit of telly, looking at a cute few guitars in what I imagine is a giant mansion in the middle of nowhere in Wyoming, which is pretty much my fantasy life anyway. So I am knocking off Lee Child, sending him somewhere else, and stealing his isolation. Right, it's yours. Done. Granted. Yeah. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> Lucy. Uh, well, I would go, I think, for Emily Wilson because she, so she's been watching with her kids Avatar The Last Airbender on Nickelodeon, which is absolutely brilliant. Is so it? I would welcome any chance to w- watch that again. How, um, how, would my, would my kids like that, Lucy? I, how, old, how, how old is it for? Would my kids like it? Oh well, it's, it's, I think it's for any age. Yeah, yeah, they would. I, I, it's highly recommended. And then she, I think she's a Booker Prize judge as well, isn't she? So she's got all the novels to read as well. So that's what she sort of, you know, got to do. And then, but also, she says in the evening when she has got time to work, she's working on her translation of the Iliad. We're all doing. We're all doing that. We're all doing that, Lucy. Well, I've rather neglected mine recently, yeah. and uh, I feel like <laughs> I feel like that would be a brilliant thing to do. I know enough Greek to know how bad I am at it, and I would love to 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 be so to to be completely kind of immersed in that world because I think that really would take you somewhere else. But also, as she says, there's a lot of a lot of um, parallels about death and suffering and privilege and all sorts of things. So that's who that's who I would take. How about you, Thea? I was gonna so this this fictional stealing of other people's isolation means that we also acquire that person's faculties. Um, no, that's good. <laughs> an ability to translate the Iliad, um, yeah. but I would, I would, I would steal Claire Carlyle's isolation. I think her high-low balance seems good to me. She goes from watching 1970s Columbo, uh, which she says is stylish, <laughs> funny, and subversive, uh, to reading Spinoza's Ethics, which she says offers deep drafts of clear, refreshing reason, while his stoic insights feel therapeutic as well as too true. And she quotes him that human power is very limited and infinitely surpassed by the power of external causes. Nevertheless, we shall bear calmly those things which happen to us contrary to our advantage if we are conscious that we have done our duty and that we are a part of the whole of nature whose order we follow. Um, so that Very sort wise. of sends shivers down down the spine. And also, I haven't read um, Tove uh, Ditlevsen's The Copenhagen Trilogy. Um, I haven't read that, and she recommends it, and it does sound it does sound very me. So I would I'd like to think that she would sanitize her copies and, and pass them over. Um, I, it was apparently initially rubbished in the 1960s when it was published for being too working class and and female, which does does sound very me. <laughs> <laughs> 
There's far too much of that about. There's far too much about that about now, though, Thea. Too too much. Too female. Too working class. Um, Spinoza is, of course, Jeeves's favourite philosopher. Yes. Of um, course. As, as I think we all know. I and George Eliot, I think. And George, yeah, well, they're, they're very similar people. I wonder, <laughs> Thea, if, if, if we were to observe you in your house and there's Columbo... You can't, ..about can to you? go on the... No, I can't, no. <laughs> but if you had two hours... <laughs> two hours to kill, you're watching Columbo... Not reading Spinoza, I feel. Thea. Oh, oh, you can for talk. Sure. A, you can talk a good. Yeah, you can talk a good game now. But exactly, I'll just be watching ER and the the reruns of all of. I discovered that all of the uh, Jeremy Brett Sherlock Holmes, uh, oh. the whole series from the eighties, is online. So that's the next thing that will end me. <laughs> that's good. That's. Uh, uh, do you know why we were talking about whether it's hard, how hard it is to sort of getting to new things? Uh, I am, as you both know, all about the rereading. Um, and I think rereading in a time of corona is in, really important because you can sort of find places to go back to. Um, you can have that sort of comfort. So I was, I reread, I'm still rereading uh, Caleb Carl's The Alienist, which is one of the great crime and historical fiction novels ever. And it's set in turn of the century in New York. Uh, and it's about um, a um, forensic scientist, the first ever forensic scientist tracking down a psychopath. Uh, and it's magnificent. So I've, what I've been doing is reread a bit, bit of that, and I've been reading um, a book called A Distant Mirror, which is about the 14th century and the Black Death. Uh, and it really does put what we're going through into massive perspective, because the 14th century really was absolutely awful. Oh, God. I mean, people's heads were bleeding out in the street, so yes. Oh, but also the weather, the, the, weather was really, the weather was really bad. Europe's population more than halved. Yeah. Um, uh, There's all sorts of wars going on. But when you look at actually the reaction to um, the Black Death, there are occasional moments which make you think... There's a great bit where she says, and people thought everyone's personalities and morals would change when the Black Death left, but they didn't. And I think all of us kind of believe after the lockdown's over, we'll all be better people, all sharing and experiencing life together more happily. And of course, you won't. It'll well, all be the same. We can still hope. Uh, go on, Lucy. So, uh, Thea's watching crap TV. I'm rereading books. What are you doing? Um, I'd like to be translating the Iliad. I'm not yet. <laughs> um, I find. I, uh, so a couple of people had said that they were also reading cookery books, which I quite like. I like either like reading cookery or um, gardening books. Don't say anything, Fig. We're all different. We all have <laughs> different interests, more than interests. Because uh, I like reading about something quite practical and then doing it if you can. It, that's quite a good antidote to feeling fidgety. And I'm wondering if it's too early in terms of rereading because I read it again quite recently to read A Place of Greater Safety, which is another Hilary Bantel, even bigger, oh. I think, maybe, than The Mirror and the Light. That was about the French Revolution, and it's terrific. I mean, really, I we're, we're all, all the people who, who counselled against hoarding books, as I imagine we have all done, uh, regardless of that advice. This is, this is the time. This is vindication at last. Yeah, There's I don't just feel no that risk I have of running go, out. No, I don't feel I have to go out and buy loads of books, because... I've still got loads in my house that I want to read or read again. I feel fairly comfortable I could be shut in for a couple of years and I'd be all right for books. But it's true um, that I'm still finding it difficult to not 
you know, to, I, I am what you said earlier, Stig, about the flitting of the mind. I am still compulsively watching the news. So even while I sat down to to be high minded and watch, a, uh, you know, a live stream, uh, I mean, a stream of a, a live theatre production from earlier in the year, Cypress Avenue, um, I watched so much of it. And then I realised that it was it was 10 o'clock and I had to watch the news. And I know you can watch it. Um, you know, you can watch it after it started, but there's just this compulsion to get it on time as it's happening, along with whoever else in the country may be watching it. Do you feel that? I feel that one of the great things we should all do for our mental health is pick a time and stop at like eight o'clock at night and stop consuming all news after that point. Someone tweeted me, which I thought was great advice, was pretend it's 1970 and just get news first thing in the morning and once in the evening. Yeah. And don't try and do any, don't try and do any more than that because nothing's really going to happen. Like pointlessly scrolling through deaths in Lombardy on that, and you know that there's that FT, very good FT graph showing tracking deaths. It's all very expert and correct and, and laudable, but it's going to precisely not make me feel better about myself or my life. And I think to a certain extent, it's all our duties to look after ourselves. And to me, that is finding something comforting to watch on telly or to read about or to listen to because you can't change any of this stuff. There's no point in knowing too much about it. Mm. Well, there you um, go. I've told you. Jeremy Brett, Sherlock Holmes. It's all online, Stig. Done. Done. <laughs> done, done, done. Lucy, you look after yourself. We'll speak to you again soon. OK, thank you. Bye. Bye. That's all we have time for this week. Our thanks go to Lucy Dallas and Zan Van Tulliken. Next week, the paper includes a piece on a Victorian scandal involving lesbians, morphine and a blind pederastic vicar. That'll take our mind off things. Until then, from Thea and from me, goodbye. Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at uh1.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.